Good morning. Do you know that something in Canadian history yesterday that has never happened before? The decathlon at the World Championships was won by a Canadian and second place was won by a Canadian. That has never ever happened before. A, la a lady won the gold medal, a Canadian lady won the gold medal in hammer throw. That has never happened before either. So I want to ask you the question, do you think that that happened by trying? By trying really, really, really hard? Or did it happen by training? By sacrificing? By eating the right foods? By doing the right exercise? By getting the right criticism from coaches? By focusing on doing the thing the right way. John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, has a whole chapter in which he distinguishes between trying and training, between just simply giving it your best effort, and that is, of course, to be exalted. You know, it's hot. You go to an ice cream shop, and you're going to try a different flavor. You don't have to train for that. You just have to indulge for that. But to win the decathlon takes more than trying. It takes training, sacrifice, endurance, the development of skills, the obtaining of an edge the achieving of a uh, level of excellence that is beyond many of our imaginations. And in his chapter, in the life in that book, The Life You've Always Wanted, he asks the question, how would the church thrive if we quit trying to follow Jesus and train to follow Jesus instead? If we sought to develop skills that would achieve an edge, that would bring us to a level of proficiency. You know, Pastor Bert uh, and I last uh, fall planned the series, Windows into God's Kingdom. Windows into a kingdom where the will of God is done. Where achievement is brought into focus. When we think about the heart of the kingdom. When we pray, your will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven, we ought to think about how we achieve the will of God. And one great aspect of achieving the will of God arises out of the reality of repentance. Jesus, when he began his ministry, it's recorded in Mark chapter 1, that after John the Baptist had been um, sort of moved to the side a little bit, Jesus began and he said, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. So I want to focus this morning on the reality um, of the kingdom. And so let me read with you from Luke chapter 24 beginning at verse 36. It's found in your pew Bibles, if you want to follow along there, on page 1061, but it is also going to be on the screen. 
And so follow with me, if you would. While they were still, still talking about this, this is about the, we looked at that last week, the report of uh, the two men on the road to Emmaus and the women who had been at the empty tomb about the fact that they couldn't find Jesus and then Jesus showing up at the, uh, at, with Cleophas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, Notice this, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. I would like to look at something I'm going to call the skills of repentance. Not just simply uh, putting an effort into it, but developing an understanding, a skill of repentance. I want to call that the idea that this is the message of the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, we read of the Great Commission. Jesus came to them and said, and then go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and surely I'm with you to the end of the age. But take a look for a moment at that mandate. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. To make something demands a certain amount of skill. Just take a look at a pulpit like this. One doesn't just try to do that. You have to think about how you're going to do that, where you're going to get the tools to shape, and you need to have an idea of what comes first, how to butter things with glue, where to put screws so that they don't aren't seen how the thing will be strong and stable and will last. Skill went into that. To make something like that takes skill, and you can multiply things like that. Just imagine making soup or making bread or repairing a car. All of those things are blessed and benefit from the development of skill. 
that comes as a result of training. And so Jesus gives us this mandate, go and make disciples. How do you do that? How do you make a person who is disciplined to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, who is disciplined to bring forth the priority of Jesus, namely, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. How do you make a disciple? Well, you can be somewhat casual about it. I want to draw to your attention uh, this man, Calvin Coolidge. He was the 30th president of the United States for a hundred years ago. His predecessor had died while in office, and so he was in office for uh, six years. He finished his predecessor's term, was elected for one term, and then refused to run again for a second term. He was reputed to be a man of very few words, and he was often referred to as Silent Cal. As president, he wrote, words of a president have uh, an enormous weight and ought to be used, in, ought not to be used indiscriminately. Wouldn't that be a relief? Just saying. Ain't going to say any more about that. He went to church one day. A hundred years ago, presidents could go to church, uh, you know, unaccompanied by secret service. And uh, after his wife didn't, his, her name was Grace, she didn't go with him. Afterwards, Mrs. Coolidge asked him whether the sermon was good. She wanted to see if she would have roast preacher that day, I guess. To which he replied, yes. What was it about? Sin. What did the preacher say about it? He was against it. <laughs> oh, Okay. That's good, nothing heretical or wrong about that, but fairly superficial. A good, skilled Christian will be able to talk knowledgeably to an interested person about the reality of sin. What is sin? Is it just simply doing something wrong? Speeding on the way to church? Is it missing the mark of perfection? All of which is true. But sin, at the very heart of it, breaks relationships. Just go back to the Garden of Eden and you can read in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 about the establishment of creation and the unfolding of creation and God and humanity walked in the cool of the day in the garden and they conversed together and then sin entered into the world and the result of sin was shame and guilt and hiddenness from God. He said, Adam, where are you? Well, I was naked and ashamed. Well, what happened? Well, the woman you gave me Oh, in other words, God's your fault. The woman you gave me caused me to sin. Oh, she said, the serpent tricked me, beguiled me, and caused me to sin. Sin shatters relationships. And Jesus comes to heal relationships. So to simply say, well, I'm against sin is one thing. 
but to understand what you are against and how to overcome the reality of what you are against demands a lot. And at the heart of the demand is this concept of repentance. Notice what Jesus does. He opens their minds. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. In other words, it becomes the geographical center from which all of this gets spread out. Repentance. What is it? A big word. Anyone know the Greek word for repentance? I, I just love what you can do with this word. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Anyone here speak Dutch? Come on, come on, you have some roots. The, the word met in Dutch, is translated how into English? With. So if you can break the word up, metanoia, to mean God is annoyed met you. I knew that would make you laugh. To be repentant is to come to this understanding that God is annoyed with me. Metanoia. God is annoyed with me because of the reality of sin. And the reality of sin demands the reality of repentance. This is not new. I mentioned earlier at the beginning, when Jesus began his public ministry, following up on the ministry of John the Baptist, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, embodied in himself, of course. Repent and believe the good news. And he brought forth this reality of kingdom thought, kingdom-centered living, throughout the three years of his ministry. When he rose from the dead, and we read this just out of Luke 24, he appeared to his disciples and said, I want you to go, and I want you to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And what happens? On Pentecost Sunday, which is some days after his ascension, on Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit gets poured out. There is wonder and amazement in Jerusalem, the center from which it will all radiate. And Peter stands up and proclaims, explains, what has happened and what is happening, and there is great conviction. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent, metanoian. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your Repent. Well, what does repentance involve? Well, I think we would be greatly blessed to stop to give it a definition. 
to understand the reality of it. And I want to refer you to question and answer 88 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And may, may I, on this last Sunday, I suppose I can do almost anything, but may I implore you to not neglect the catechism. Read it on your own. It's not that hard to understand. You can go online and you can find a version of the catechism under the Christian Reformed website with all scripture passages listed underneath it. You can look at those scripture passages. You could even write them out. Because when you write out scripture, you slow down and you begin to reflect on words like make disciples. How do I do that? How do I make a disciple? Well, how do I bake a bread? You look at a recipe. You follow it. You consult with a veteran baker. You do experiments. You come up with answers. You develop skills. You go through training rather than just simply trying. Well, the Catechism asks the question, what is involved with genuine repentance? I just had my birthday last week. I thought about my mother, who's been gone for many years. And my mother was, I think, a person of considerable insight. And I remember I had done something wrong. I won't bore you with the details. And I went to her and I said, I'm sorry. And she said, that is such an easy word. I've never forgotten that. To be sorry can be just glib. I'm sorry. Or to be genuine, I am deeply sorry. Are two different things. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things. A dying away of the old self and a rising to life of the new. And so take a look at that road. It's uh, got a hairpin turn in it. It's a dying away. It's being born from above. It is being turned around. It is being convicted. Men and brothers, what shall we do? We are cut to the heart. You repent. And repentance takes place in a moment. But it has ongoing impact. So there's a sharp turn, and then there is the reality of ongoing bringing to life of new, of the new. One of our spiritual forefathers, Martin Luther, uh, published 95 theses and nailed them to the church door of Wittenberg. Anybody remember the date? October 31st, what year? 1517. Your children ought to know that date and not Halloween. Okay? 
in his 95 theses, this is what he said in the first one, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ in saying, repent ye, and so forth, intended that the whole life of his believers on earth should be a constant penance, a constant recognition about the impact of sin in the shattering of relationships on four levels. Between God and self, Adam and Eve hid themselves. Their relationship was shattered. Between myself and myself, I love to lie to myself. When I can eat good ice cream, I ignore the fact that I'm 30 pounds overweight. Between ourselves and, uh, and others, the woman you gave me, the serpent beguiled me, others caused me to do this. And between ourselves and this good creation that God has made as we casually flip plastic bottles out of car windows because we don't want them cluttering up the floor of our freshly vacuum cleaned car. We shatter relationships. And Luther said that our life should be a life of constant penance. So develop an understanding that repentance involves a change and repentance involves ongoing change. Now I would like to draw your attention to this tree. You have um, a copy of it, I think, in your bulletin with some blanks. And if you have a pencil or uh, a pen, I invite you to uh, not only fill out the ballot for your office bearers, but to fill out this little sheet of paper and carry it with you. Uh, I have been carrying this with me since 1975. In 1975, I served the Ocean View Christian Reformed Church in Norfolk, Virginia, which is the world's biggest naval base and where we had a fellowship home for sailors. I served that church as a summer student, and my supervisor, the Reverend John Calvin Rickers, who died just a year ago, uh, said to me, I want you to listen to the series of tapes by this Reverend Martin from the Reformed Church of America, because he has something to teach all of us about the biblical doctrine of repentance. And Reverend Martin used this illustration of a tree, uh, which I have adopted. And the, the reality is, is that we can sort of bind the elements of uh, repentance together around the aspects of that tree. Repentance, Reverend Martin said, arises out of the soil of God's free grace. And he focuses on the, the event of Peter, the Apostle Peter, going to the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion and a Gentile. Peter had been resting, and he has this vision of a great sheet coming down with clean and unclean animals on it. And he hears a voice as Peter Get up and eat. And Peter says, oh, no, that'll never happen. I have never eaten anything unclean. And just the fact that an 
unclean animal was associated with a clean animal animal made the clean animal unclean. There's nothing there I can do. Whatever I have declared to be clean, don't you declare to be unclean. And three times this vision appears. And then there is a knock at the door. And there are people there from the household of a Gentile, Cornelius, And Peter is invited to go, and Peter goes. And as he preaches the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls upon these Gentiles. Unbelievable. That's not the way God's supposed to work. We, the Jews, are his special people. But it happened. And now Peter's in trouble. He goes back to Jerusalem. They hear that he has gone into the house of Cornelius. I had never entered into the house of an unclean person before. And they demand an explanation. And the reality of the explanation is is that the Holy Spirit comes and notice these words. And when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, So then God has granted Notice this little word that I've underlined. Even the Gentiles' repentance unto life. Wow. God has granted. I'll appeal to some of your Dutch background. Even the Frisians' repentance unto life. Unbelievable. Who is that Mohalik? How is that possible? But it happened. I'm a Frisian and proud, and proud of it, but as one Frisian said to me, I've taken pills for it. Well, whatever. But you see, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Notice that at the heart of repentance is God's activity. He is sovereign Lord. Unless you are born from above, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So repentance arises out of the soil of God's free grace, and that means that if you are going to develop some skill In being a follower of Jesus, you have to struggle with the reality of the good news of the gospel. It is intended for all the world. Go into all nations and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have told you. And surely I'm with you to the close of the age. And then two things, according to Reverend Martin, happens. First of all, there is a growth in a conviction of sin. Sin is not just simply making a mistake or falling short, all of which fall under the definition of sin, but sin is a shattering of relationships. And at the heart of that, you can just simply refer to David and the story of Bathsheba and the adultery that he and Bathsheba participated in, and then Nathan the prophet comes And he says, you are the man. You have shattered the family of Uriah. You have caused brokenness. 
And then you just turn to Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. And David pleads for mercy. Or, or you can just simply go to the Apostle Paul. Persecutor of the church. Destroyer of followers of Jesus. And he stopped on the road. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And then he is blinded and he is taken. And then God, or God comes to Ananias and says to Ananias, go to the street called Straight and there you'll find my servant Paul and anoint him, baptize him. And Ananias says, ah, Lord, are you sure that's a good idea? He's a persecutor of the church. It'd be better if he stayed blind. And then God says to Ananias, behold, he prays. He has come under conviction of sin. All of us need to. We, we diminish sin. We, we downplay sin. Wow, everybody does it. It's not a big deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. Sin shatters relationships. And we need to be under a conviction of sin. And then Reverend Martin says, you, you need also to come to an understanding of the cross. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And, and I can't read it that far, he's making peace through his blood shed on the cross. On the cross, atoning sacrifice for our sin is made. The price has been paid. Redemption has been achieved. It is paid in full. Martin Luther we referred to earlier, but Martin Luther comes to understand that the just are saved by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are declared righteous. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. You still have work to do. But God sees you as righteous. Because you, your sin has been washed away in the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay? So the reality of forgiveness of sins, conviction of sin, being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Notice this all happens below the surface of the soil. It arises out of the soil of God's free grace. There are two roots, a conviction of sin, an understanding of the cross, and then we get to more, more public uh, understanding. Uh, you know, so a dying away of the old self, of coming to life of the new, or another secondary definition, a change of heart and a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. A change of heart a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. John Ordberg says there are a number of steps you can take. Uh, there's a step of preparation. Ask God to open an understanding to yourself. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then he says, engage in self-examination. And he refers to the fact that Martin Luther 
regularly looked at his own life through the lens of the Ten Commandments. If you would like a different lens, look at your own life through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and look at, at step number four to make a searching, fearless, moral inventory of the exact nature of all your wrongs. The third thing, um, or, or the fourth thing, is allow for godly sorrow. Allow for, you say, man, I am really sad about this. Remember when Peter denied Jesus? What did he do? He went out and he wept bitterly. It's okay to be sorry. You should not be glib about your sorrow. Renew your promise to change. Say to God, I failed you. I have not been gracious. I have not been benevolent. I have not been compassionate. I'm going to try better. As a matter of fact, I am going to train to be better. And then finally, embrace the reality and the truth of grace. Jesus died for your sin. There is no exception to that. He died for your sin and embrace the reality and say, God has been merciful to me, a sinner. And then finally, or, or, or this, recognize that, that in, in the reality of God's mercy, that he places you in community. It is so important that you are together. It is so important that you strive to follow the leadership that you will affirm this morning. It is so important that you come and share at this table. It is so important that you participate in the reality of baptism. It is so important that you are part of the community of saints. We are to confess sins to each other and to pray for each other that we may be healed, uh, James writes. And then these words from Bonhoeffer, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. You can say to a good friend, I need your help. Help me to be honest about my bad habit. Help me to be an overcomer. And then finally, recognize these words. A good fruit ca a tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and through the, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those are the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, probably the greatest sermon ever preached. But be a fruit inspector in your own life. Take a look at yourself through the lens of Galatians chapter 5.22. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, and self-control. Recognize that many people add a letter. Many people say the fruits of the Spirit. But that's not true. It is singular. The fruit of the Spirit. It is one fruit with different elements. Next time you chop an orange or a grapefruit in half, you'll see the different pieces of the meat. Recognize that if God chops you in half, he would see the different pieces of the meat. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, and self-control. Become a fruit inspector and ask someone in your life 
to become a fruit inspector for you. How am I doing with my self-control? Recognize that repentance involves skill. Let me conclude this way. We love to say that God is love, and he is. He loves us so much that he sends his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And he calls us to engage in being seekers of the kingdom, doing the will of God at every level of life, being compassionate and benevolent and caring. I have come to bring good news to the poor, says Jesus in Luke 4, to tell prisoners that they are prisoners no more, to tell blind people that they can see, to set the downtrodden free, and go tell everyone the news that the kingdom of God has come. But I would like you also to think about what does God hate? Because he does hate. He hates sin. And I know what he hates in me. He hates any sense of mediocrity. Any sense of, meh, it'll do. I'll just, eh, be casual about it. No, he wants me to be a fully devoted follower of his son. He wants me to love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. And I believe he wants the same for you. Let's pray. Lord our God, thank you for challenging us to move beyond trying, to go to training, to developing some real skills so that we become more effective followers of Jesus. We pray, Lord God, that you would fill us with your spirit. Move us to be good fruit trees, fruit bearers, so that people will see that it is Christ who lives in us, that it is no longer we who live, but that he who lives in and through us. So help us to be a community of grace. Help us to be your royal presence in the Willoughby area. And help us to be surrounded or surrounding of others with your love and care and compassion from the depth of our being. Hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.